0: you? People can't tell their real stories when they're afraid they might spill bouillabaisse on their designer gown, when they're worried they might use the wrong fork. That's the beauty of a diner, wouldn't you say? Diners, and especially their counters, are the indoor version of a campfire. People like to sit around them and tell their stories. Mine's about miracles. I even have a daughter named Miracle, which gives you an idea of their importance in my life. Aw, settle down and quit your squirming. I'm not witnessing for any reverend I am a fraud or a swami full a lot of bologna. I'm not one of those bothersome lackeys out to fill my quota of converts to the Church of Perpetual Possibility or the Temple of Unending Yakity Yak. I am the salt of the earth, and I do not believe in the ninety percent rigmarole that is organized religion. But miracles? Miracles, my friend, are a different thing entirely. From what I can see, miracles are built from love, and as far as love is concerned, I am a true believer. CHAPTER ONE On her sixteenth birthday, Violet Mathers nearly bled to death in a thread factory. The incident, as it was referred to in the company's 1935 logbook, happened on the graveyard shift, just before break time, when the pounding and the whirring and the squeaking of the machines had crescendoed into a percussion concert conducted by the devil himself. Lamont Travers, the foreman, told her later in the hospital that the worst accidents always happen before break. People can't wait to smoke their cigarettes or drink their coffee and talk about whose man or whose woman had done who the wrongest. Violet hadn't cared about any of that. She wanted only to cut into the marble cake Ray Ann Puffer had brought, wanted only to hear her co-workers raise their tired, smoky voices in a chorus of happy birthday. Excited and jumpy as a puppy with a full bladder, the birthday girl broke the cardinal rule of the Marceline Thread Factory. The cardinal rule printed in capital letters on at least three signs posted on the dusty brick walls. Do not attempt to clear or repair the machinery without first turning machinery off. She was running the Clayson a big, reliable machine that sweat oil as it wound and cut dozens of spools of thread. There were women who were possessive of their machines. Lula Wendell even named hers and explained that whenever the machine spit out thread or overwound, it was because Pauletta was on her monthly. Violet had formed no deep attachments to the masses of metal, preferring the job of runner and working whatever machine needed running. When she ran the Clayson, she felt as if she was wrangling a harmless but stubborn old cow, and it was almost with affection that she scolded the machine when it huffed and burped to a stop. "'Now come on, gal, I ain't got time for this,' said Violet, and with one hand on the Clayson's metal flank, she stuck the other up into its privates, feeling for the tangled clot of thread. There was a yank then— and the benign old cow turned into a crazed bull, sucking her arm up between its jaws. A flash fire of shock and pain exploded at Violet's elbow joint and in her brain, and just as red-hot was her outrage. But it's my birthday! Rayanne, who was next to Violet on the floor, screamed, and Polly Ball, the only woman on the floor to have gone to college, she would have graduated from UNC Raleigh with a degree in art history had she not been summoned home after her father died, thought. That's the scream in the Edvard Munch painting. Violet, too, heard the scream, even as she fainted, even as the weight of her falling body helped further tear skin from skin and bone from bone. When she woke up in the hospital her stub arm wrapped and bleeding like a rump roast in butcher's paper, the screaming was still inside her head, was in her head for more years than she cared to count. When the morphine curtain lifted on her consciousness, her first thought was, some sweet sixteenth. Violet should have known better. In her short history she had learned that expectations only deepened the disappointment that inevitably stained every special occasion. Not that many were celebrated. In excavating her mind for memories of parties and presents, she'd only been able to dig up those concerning her sixth birthday, when her mother baked her a yellow cake iced with raspberry jelly and gave her a real present to unwrap. It was a rag doll Violet immediately christened Jelly Cakes, commemorating what she told her mother was the best birthday cake and the best birthday doll ever, 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 ever made. The remembrance of that lone celebration was ruined by what her mother did three days later, which was to run off with the pharmacist from Henson Drugs. Considering her robust good health, Erline spent a lot of time at the pharmacy window. Every other customer walked away tucking green or brown bottles of tonics and pills and elixirs into their purses or pockets. But all her mamma left the drugstore with was a flushed face and a soft, dreamy look in her eyes. Violet liked Mr. Gladstone, the pharmacist. He gave her root beer barrels, and once a Henson's Drugs for all your drug and sundry's needs, calendar with a picture of a kitten on it. But after he robbed her of her mother, Violet came to think of the druggist as the criminal he was, a man guilty of grand theft. She was a child at the time of the crime, hadn't even started the first grade yet. Ten years later, when Violet lost her arm, it occurred to her that this was not her first amputation but her second. Later, when she came to know how love can slam reason and responsibility to the mat as easily as a heavyweight takes down a bantam, Violet forgave her mother for running off. Yarby Gladstone did have nice clean hands, after all, and an entire set of teeth, or at least all of the ones that showed in a smile. But she never forgave Erline for forgetting about her, for never sending a letter or postcard, for never sending for her. Mothers who disappear off the face of the earth leave their children feeling as if they've disappeared too. Disappeared from everything they thought was certain and safe and true. Abandonment can be crueler to a child than death. Violet would rather her mama had died because at least a grave would have given her a place to visit, something to touch, something to talk to. There were few people in Mount Crawford, Kentucky, surprised by the young Mrs. Mathers taking a permanent leave of absence. It didn't take any great power of observation to see that Violet's parents were as mismatched as a crow and a canary. Jud Mathers was Earlene's senior by fifteen years and had always looked older than his age. He was not yet forty when his wife left, and yet his long, thin face was was as creased as a bloodhound's, his black hair leached to a lusterless gray. He was one of those men hobbled by his inability to exercise his emotions, except for anger. Although Violet thought that in his stunted capacity, he really loved his wife. She remembered him smiling at her mama's jokes, watching Erline with a shy delight when she put the cornbread on the table, crowing, ta or when she hung the clothes out on the line, grabbing his union suit and pretending to waltz with it. What registered most on the young Mrs. Mather's face when she looked at her husband was disbelief and impatience, as if she were always asking herself, How did I get here? And how soon can I leave? Had she not gone and got herself pregnant, Erline would have laughed out loud at Judd's marriage proposal would have swatted it away as if it was a black and pesky fly. There was a certain flightiness to her mama that, even as a child, Violet recognized. The young, she was only eighteen when Violet was born, trim woman, could be in the middle of kneading dough when she'd wipe her hands on the dish towel and dash out of the back door, calling out that she was going